Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless, if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. You better hold on to your friggin' lug nuts for this one, because it's time for a major football overhaul. Let's get to it. back at it in the Life 2.0 podcast. So this is a very special show. Uh, but before I get into my guests, they're incredible guys, great writers, authors, football players, Hall of Famers, all that stuff we'll get to in just a couple minutes. I wanted to run this clip to kind of set the whole show up. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I introduce these two guys uh, and do it in the right way? And the first thing I thought of was, I know I got an audio clip somewhere the last time my guest and one of his co-authors, I should say, uh, was on the show with me. It was in 2001. So get a load of this. And we're back, Power Talk Radio, News Talk 600 WCHT. Dick Schaap is the author of more than 30 books uh, that cover a wide range of the human spectrum and how life is, especially in the sports world. He shadowed box with Muhammad Ali, he's golfed with Bill Clinton and traded punchlines with Billy Crystal and Lenny Bruce, and fans have loved him for over 50 years. And now we're going to be talking about this latest effort. It's called Dick Schaap Flashing Before My Eyes. And it is written by Dick Schaap, as told to Dick Schaap, which I expected no less. And he joins us this afternoon in the middle of Manhattan. How are you doing, Dick? I'm doing just fine, but I, I think I should tell you that that part that you read is, is a real tribute to, to press agentry. That, that <laughs> part about shadow boxing with Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I mean, I'm crazy, but I'm not that crazy. Yeah. You know, Jerry Kramer uh, is a good buddy of mine, and we were uh, talking just a week or so ago. And I, when I was a kid growing up, of course, you co-authored Instant Replay and Distant Replay with him. And those books are still very, very popular. Uh, that whole time you spent in the Green Bay era and those incredible athletes is still things we can learn about today. Oh, it's, it's, you know, that, that, that's my stuff from Green Bay, and that's where my books are most popular. I've written six books about the Packers, four of them with Jerry, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm thinking very seriously of writing my next book uh, about the same person I wrote my first book about, uh, which was Paul Arning. So when I had the opportunity at, at the age of 14 to start writing for a weekly newspaper, uh, that was great. When I was 15, I started working on a daily newspaper. Yeah. Four nights a week, four hours a night, $1 an hour. Wow. And my boss was Jimmy Breslin, who went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. Absolutely. You know, I know we don't have a whole lot of time at the table, but it, could we take a phone call? That'd be all right? Oh, sure. Great. Uh, okay. Hello? Yes. Uh, I was wanting to know if he was uh, overpaid at that $1 an hour. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, before the $1 an hour, when I was writing for the weekly paper, I think I got $5 a column, and I know I was overpaid that way. <laughs> I'll see you in uh, Los Angeles Monday night, Mr. Shap. Yes, voice that is. <laughs> you know who that is? Yes, do you know who it is, John? Well, sure, I know who it is. Do you know who it is? Yes, I do. It's Mr. Kramer. It's Mr. Kramer. <laughs> How you doing, Jerry? I'm doing good, Johnny. How are you guys doing? Well, we're doing great. We're doing great. We uh, we hauled Dick out of the middle of Manhattan, stuck a cell phone in his ear. We're doing the show, and I said, you know, we got to get Kramer on because you guys are really cut from the same cloth. The books that you put together, Instant Replay and Distant Replay, have done so well, and it's it's become part of the American landscape. How come you guys can't 
Oh, no, I can't. What's that? What's that? Dick? How can you reach Jerry so easily on the phone? It takes me three days. You know what that's called? That's called rank has its privileges. <laughs> yeah. Boy. Uh, you know, it's been a sensational experience, John, to have uh, been associated with Dick and been a part of his. Uh, collection of authors and 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 friends and I, I, we've had a great relationship for uh, almost 40 years now mm. and he's been a consistent uh, decent wonderful human being he loves the new book and uh, enjoy being around him enjoy working with him all i kept thinking about listening to that clip from 2001 when we had dick shap on my show and then we had jerry call in from some golf course somewhere i'm sure was that dick shap would get a kick and a half out of the brand new book that Jerry has out called Run to Win, written with the great Bob Fox. And both these guys join me on the podcast. Hey, guys. Hey, Johnny. Was that not the best clip ever? That was a wonderful reminder of what a superhuman being he was and what a great friend. Uh, I loved it. It was perfect. Yeah. So, Bob, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've done quite a few books as a ghostwriter. I have three of my own books out. It's a daunting task. But your subject matter, your co-author, the guy that you're covering one more time, Jerry Kramer, the greatest guard in the history of the National Football League, Hall of Famer. And I'm starting to think about you're looking at instant replay and distant replay as part of the whole library. Any pressure there on you? Uh, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. No question about it. But, you know, the one thing about knowing Jerry now as long as I have, it's like we connected pretty much right out of the gate. We, we enjoyed each other's company on the phone after we first got to know each other. We actually first met just before Super Bowl 25 in Tampa. I saw him at a golf outing where a bunch of uh, former pro football players were playing, including a bunch of Lombardi Packers. And uh, I met Jerry, and I had written a letter to Packer Report about why Jerry deserved to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I showed Jerry that letter as between holes, and he looked at it, he was touched by the letter, he thought it was a nice letter, and we both figured that Jerry was gonna be in the hall any day now, or any year now, because he was a nine-time finalist up to that point. And uh, little did we know, it would take 27 years later for it to actually happen, mm -hmm. but 10 years later, I was actually writing for Packer Report. I was with them for several years, and then I was with Bleacher Report for several years after that. And all during that time, I was writing a lot of articles about the Packers and Jerry and his teammates and Coach Lombardi, etc. And after a while, Jerry told me, you know, you've written a lot of articles about me and the Packers. I think we might have a book. And I go, I think you're right. And so we've been working on this for quite a while, but it really was... I mean, when you think about it, Dick Schaap, mm. to me, I have a bunch of his books as well. To me, he's an icon. And the fact that we were able to get Jeremy Schaap to yeah. do the forward in our book, we still have the Schaap connection, so to speak. But those are big shoes to fill. And believe me, I, I felt that pressure. So, yeah, Jerry, so Jeremy Schaap writes the forward to the book and talks about his dad and the importance of you two. And, and I kept reading the book, thinking about you and Bob doing this together. And while it's different than the relationship that you have with Dick Schaap, this is someone who is so steeped. I mean, when I looked at your email, Bob, I mean, come on, Green Bay Bob, right? So you're so <laughs> steeped in the culture, which Schaap wasn't. What was that like working with Bob, someone who really is basically right out of Lambeau Field? 
You know, it was easy uh, to put it in a very simple, quick term. Um, he asked intelligent questions. He knew the field. He knew the territory. He knew the team. He knew the players. He knew almost as much as I did about the game and the Green Bay Packers and Coach Lombardi. So we would uh, look for moments that hadn't been uh, explored. Uh, and there were a couple things in there that I remembered from the playing days that I had never talked about before. And uh, we found them like a little jewel. And it was an interesting uh, time and a good time. And I'm real pleased with the book. Yeah. You know, one of the things that jumped out, and again, I've read both instant replay, distant replay. About a month ago, I called Jeff because I was at a book sale and I found Farewell to Football that cost $1.99. So, you know, it was well worth the two yeah. bucks for me to get that and go through that again. <laughs> but I, I kept thinking about, as you mentioned, these little jewels and things that I either, you know, people don't realize when they, until they read the book or in there, what have you. But the one thing that jumped out right away, when we think about the money that's in sports today, especially football, and all that goes into the combine and all the numbers that go into you know getting these guys ready for the National Football League, you had none of that back in 1958. Staggering salaries today, John. It's just uh, staggering. I, uh, I signed for uh, $250, and I uh, thought it was a bonus, right? And I went to the East-West Shrine game with that $250 with Wayne Walker, my buddy at that time. And we spent it and had a wonderful time. And I went to Green Bay, and, I, and my general manager then, Coach Lombardi wasn't there the first year, but the general manager uh, asked me to come up and sign my contract. And he had the contract for $77.50. And uh, I said, uh, that other 250 was a, a bonus, right? And he goes, no, Jerry, that was an advance. Uh, we adva advanced you at 7750 and so you're going to sign a contract for 7500 And I was an Idaho potato and uh, about as dumb as one. And imagine uh, a guy doing that to me, but right. he did. And so... My first season was a lot like that general manager. We were 1-10-1 and one and had the worst record in the history of the Packer franchise. And uh, Scooter McLean was our head coach. And uh, Coach Lombardi came to town and Scooter left that afternoon. He didn't wait <laughs> to get fired or relieved of his duties. Right. He just got out of town. And the difference between Scooter McLean and Coach Lombardi was like a uh, Statue of Liberty and a, uh, a fire hydrant, I guess, something like that, right? It was, it was just a little bit different. Uh, Mr. A concentration period of a college student's five minutes, high school is three minutes, kindergarten is 30 seconds, and you don't have that, so where's that put you? <laughs> oh, I put me check checking my shoe shine, John. I'm checking my shoe shine. Yeah, you know the other thing that occurred while I was reading that chapter about coming to Green Bay. You know, there was no combine back then. They didn't mention how, how many times you could bench press 225, how fast you were, how high you could leap on a box. They sent you guys questionnaires. Yes, and, and you yes, filled out did. a piece I, of I, paper. Uh, <laughs> yes. 
You did. Uh, you, they ask about your military uh, situation yeah. and uh, your health and your injuries and a variety of things that uh, you knew a little bit about. But uh, it was a, uh, I don't know, uh, supposedly there was a guy that Jack Venisti knew. Jack was our personnel guy. And he knew a guy who ran a sawmill in Idaho about 30 mi miles from the university. And he was the guy that suggested to Jack that they draft me and Jack started looking into it and mm -hmm. the rest is history. But it was a sawmill guy that uh, found me in the, <laughs> the, sawmill <laughs> in the corner guy. of Idaho. Oh, yeah. God. You know, I read somewhere that uh, when they when they sent Horning's report back, of course he was the golden boy, uh, that he could do everything on the field was his strengths. He could do everything, but his weakness was girls. Uh, from where I stood, his strength was girls. His weakness <laughs> was football. <laughs> oh, he, man. Was, he was he was an incredibly bright, uh, intelligent, uh, open guy. We, we the first time I ever spent any time with him, we're in Milwaukee for a game, and we go to a hotel that has a dance floor on the third or fourth floor, and there's probably six, 700 people there, and uh, the MC comes over and asks if he can introduce us. There are about six or seven of us ball players there. Max was there, Paul was there, Jimmy was there, Willie was there, Fuzzy was there, and uh, so we go up, and the guy introduces us, and we step forward very uh, gingerly, and uh, wave our hand at the crowd, and don't you know, just take about three seconds to say hello. And we got down to Horning, and uh, he was the last guy, and he picked up the microphone, <laughs> and he starts uh, dancing. He's going, thank you, goody, goody. And he's singing and dancing. And I'm looking at him going, who the hell is this? And where did he come from? He's not a, he's a dancer and a singer and, and what? And uh, he could do it all, Johnny. He uh -huh. could just do it all. He was a wonderful ball player. He was bright, a, a wonderful runner. He um, stay, used me, set me up for blocks for going around the corner. He would fake inside and try to get the defensive back to commit and then bring him to me, and then he'd go outside and go on down the field. So he was a, a piece of work and a wonderful ball player. Bob, this must have been just off the charts for you, I mean, with your background and your love for the Packers and all that you've done and writing for them and all stuff like that, to sit and listen to this and then recap all this and put it in some sort of form that is, you know, it's readable for the people that are obviously going to buy the book. So what was the process? How did you guys create the book on the physical? Well, it was, uh, it was a different type of process. First thing, when Jerry was, uh, you know, we were waiting for Jerry to get into the Hall of Fame. I was thinking, you know, let's talk about or let's write about the players who are in the Hall of Fame that are on the Packers. So we mm -hmm. started doing uh, stories about Bart and Forrest and Willie and Ray and all those guys. And that basically developed, I think I did in this book, in fact, I know, we did 28 chapters on teammates of Jerry's. Right. 
and and we uh, a couple of them are like with Willie Davis, uh, you know, one of Jerry's best friends. That's a, a longer chapter than the most, but I mean, um, you know, <laughs> when you think about it, and you know this being from the Chicago area, uh, the first uh, interracial couple, so to speak, in the NFL was uh, uh, Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers. Right. The, the second interracial couple was Willie Davis and Jerry Kramer in 1968. Yeah. And, and you know, the, you were talking about Jack Venezi, and, you know, he's a Chicago guy as well, and he doesn't get enough credit. He actually should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame for all the great scouting he did. But prior to Coach Lombardi arriving in Green Bay, he had drafted players like Billy Houghton, Bobby Dillon, Dave Hanner, Bill Forrester, Jim Ringo, mm. Max McGee, Forrest Gregg, Bob Skaronsky, Dave yeah. Kreminger, Bart Starr, Paul Horney, Ron Kramer. Of course, in 58, maybe the greatest draft uh, class of all time, at least for the Packers, Dan Curry, Jim Taylor, Ray Nischke, and Jerry. I mean, that's fantastic. Plus, yeah. Jack played a major role, a major role, in getting Coach Lombardi to come to Green Bay. I mean, uh, he again, he deserves so much credit, but in terms of putting the book together, it was just really a process, but Jerry made it easy for me because he's got so many great stories to tell. And let's face it, when you put a book together, it's the stories that sell the book. That's and right. Jerry, Jerry can tell them better than anybody I've ever met in my life. You know, I, I remember reading in one part of the book where Dave Robinson talked about his concern uh, because on one hand, when Lombardi came in, he kind of cleaned house. There was some racial tensions and things back then, obviously, in the 50s. And Lombardi had kind of moved some of that stuff out of the way. But then when you got drafted and came in, there was some concern that, you know, well, here's this this white bread guy coming in here. And he said, it, you took, you know, once you started taking him hunting polar bears and stuff, all that kind of went away. Hmm. What was the question, John? Well, no, it's just an opposite. The question was that, you know, you have turned into whether you knew this was going to happen or not. And Bob made the point. That, you know, first you have Sayers and Piccolo doing their thing. And then, of course, you and Willie became roommates. But a lot of the other guys saw you as someone who was the great equalizer when it came to race relations, whether you knew that or not. You know, I uh, treated the guys like I wanted to be treated. Uh, uh, I didn't love everybody. I loved Willie. Uh, I loved Robbie. I loved Elijah. I loved I, – I, a lot of the guys just were – great teammates. And I couldn't fathom the prejudice and the problems that some of the teams had had and some of the players had had. But we welcomed the players with open arms, especially if they were the quality of player that Robbie was, or Willie was, or Elijah was, or so many of the guys added so much to our team that it, to, to be prejudiced against them would ignorant and just stupid. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, uh, uh, Willie was a really bright guy, had his MBA, he sat on the board of uh, American Express, Sara Lee, MGM, Dow Chemical, 14 major corporations asked him to sit on their board of directors. So do you think he had a few brains? Do you think he had a little smart? The reason we roomed together is we were both about the same age and we were looking at retirement in a year or two and Willie knew more about business than any other ball player I'd ever known and had more connections than I'd ever known and he was smart and he was funny and he was a kick in the pants to be with. And he just ended up being one of my 
one of my best pals, and uh, I loved him dearly. You know, going through the book, I, I'm trying to imagine myself, you guys having conversations, because you pointed out, Bob, you have all these names in here. I'm going to run through some of it. You know, you have, of course, Lombardi and Willie, as you mentioned, and Bart Starr and Horning and Max McGee and Fuzzy and Boyd Dollar and Ron Kramer, who should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Uh, Ray yep. Nitschke, right? Forrest Gregg, Bob Skronsky. And, and how I was thinking about this last night, knew we were going to do this show today. I'm watching the Tennessee Titans play, and I believe Bob Skronsky's grandson, who went to Northwestern, plays for Tennessee. That's right. How cool That's is right. that? Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. So I'm going, you go through this whole list, and you know, every one of these, I'm thinking, Jerry, you had to kind of go back and open your file drawer of memories for these guys. And, and got to call it what it is. There's only a few of you guys left. So how difficult was it to talk about these guys? And quite frankly, I'm, I'm a little bit amazed uh, that you were able to still extract so much from the content you've put out so much over the years. I think part of it is the memories, as Bob says, the stories are what sell. People are attracted to this, and they're connected to the Packer uh, players like almost no other team I can think of quite even I'll admit the Bears I'll, okay you got it out of me I'll, I'll even we're not as connected in Chicago <laughs> to you ass <laughs> in Green Bay but uh, <laughs> but uh, but you know and 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 I'm saying this w- with great respect because when that which we're going to get the documentary here in just a few minutes but when that came out I, I spent seven weeks going back and forth with um, Brian McCaskey in the archives to find a 12-second piece of tape of the of Jerry making a play against the Bears with some perfect block. And you know how hard it was to admit that the most perfect block Kramer threw was against the Bears? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. every, every one of these guys that you went through, Jerry, I mean, you're hearing, you know, I'm, I'm assuming Bob's like, well, tell me about Jimmy Taylor and tell me about Robbie and tell me about Leroy Caffey and Tommy Joe Crutcher. Some of these guys' names – are not as familiar as, as the bigger names like Forrest Gregg and Ray Nitschke, but each one of them an integral part of your life. You know, uh, John, we kind of went through the guys, and a lot had been said, and I'd written a lot about the game and our team and our guys, and so I kind of took a left turn there somewhere and started uh, introducing Bob to some of the moments that I'd had with celebrities that uh, from coming from Sandpoint, Idaho, which was a massive facility there of about <laughs> 3,000 people, and to be, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I know a guy named Rod McEwen, who is a mm. poet, and my father used to read poetry to us kids. We didn't have television when I was seven, eight years old, so dad would read poetry to us, and I got hooked on poetry, and I read poetry to Willie. And uh, I am uh, having dinner with Rod McEwen one evening down in Palm Springs or outside of L.A. And uh, he says, Jerry, uh, Frank Sinatra is doing a double album of my songs tonight. He's over at the studio right now. Would you like to go hear him record? <laughs> and I said, would I? Oh, I would love to. I love Sinatra. Sinatra is one of my all-time favorite singers. Wow, that would be really special. Mm-hmm. So we, we finish dinner, and we jump up, and we go over to the studio. And Frank comes over and says hello. And he goes back, and he's doing a song called Two Can Dream a Dream Together. 
and uh, it goes something like two can dream a dream together two can dream a dream together two can dream a dream together and i think he's beating it a little bit you know that it's a, and i say frank you got you're beating that song up you got to lighten up a little bit and he looks at me and he goes what i said i said Two could dream a dream together is a beautiful thought. I said, uh, you got to lighten up on it. And oh he reaches God. out his left hand uh, about 10 inches from my nose, and he makes a circular motion for about 30 seconds. Wow. And he evaporated me. He just erased me. And so... so we we left there and I goes, you didn't try to tell Sinatra how to sing a song, oh did you? Did you really do that? What the hell were you thinking about? And I just, you know, Frank was kind of one of the guys and I liked him a lot and I had great admiration for him. And I thought that he was beating that song up and he needed to lighten up. So... <laughs> that was the beginning so, and the end of your career as a music producer, apparently. Yeah. He didn't ask more about it. He just, you know, <laughs> went about his business and went on with things. So stories like that that had never been in the light and things that had happened in, to me with George C. Scott and Charlie Pride and mm. just a, a bunch of folks, uh, you know, uh, wanted to be a involved with the Green Bay Packer. I think the Packers were so powerful at that time and had such a wonderful team that the whole world knew who the heck we were. Yeah. Hey, Bob, so, so before I we... So I tried to bring, bring yeah, some of those stories to the yeah. place. So, Bob, before we go forward, it just kind of clicked into my head. How do you account for the fact, I mean, is it because the pa that Packer team with Lombardi came kind of together as the NFL was really starting to become a thing, you know, TV and things like that? I mean... How do you account for the fact that decades later, that group of men that played with Lombardi especially are so revered, uh, so honored, uh, not just for what they did on the field, but who they were off the field? I mean, how do you, as a Packer aficionado, a Packer uh, backer, and a Packer expert, how do you put that into words? Well, I think, you know, getting to know Jerry was great and still is great. But, you know, because of Jerry, I was able to talk to fellows like Zeke Bradkowski. Uh, I talked to Willie Davis, Dave Robinson, uh, Donnie Anderson, uh, Jim Grabowski, all sorts of Packer teammates of Jerry's. Mm -hmm. And that's when I found out why these guys are so revered. Because as good as they were on the field, obviously five championships in seven years, including three straight championships in a row, which has never been done before or after, um, and the first two Super Bowls, they were great on the field, obviously. But off the field, I learned right away that these guys are just great human beings. And mm -hmm. you can tell that comes from Coach Lombardi right. as their leader. He, he was not only a great coach, he was a great teacher, not only about football, but about life. Right, Jerry? Yeah. He, he, uh, one thing he did is make mistakes so painful, like the <laughs> earlier illustration of yeah. Mr. Yeah. Concentration period is 
And he made it so in front of your teammates, in front of the whole world, he's screaming at the top of his lungs. Now what he does after that, I'm up in the locker room. I've been there for about an hour. He'd been out working with Barton wide receivers on pass patterns. And he came in the door and saw me down at the far end of the locker room. And I got my head down, checking the carpet, wondering what my next move is going to be and where I'm going to move to and uh, what team I might be able to play for. And I was as deep a hole as I could get in. And he came down and slapped me on the back of the neck and messed up my hair and pushed me on the shoulder and he said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. And he turned around and walked away. And I just almost exploded. I mm. was so full of myself and so full of that moment and so full of that image that I, I, I could have flown out of the locker room, I think. But I tried to live up to his expectations. And in doing that, I pushed myself harder than I had ever pushed myself before. And I pushed myself on every play, every day, every moment. You know, whether I had a busted this or a busted that, really didn't matter. I could play with it, I could handle it. So he had a tremendous impact on me and on my teammates and on that whole locker room. So a tremendous amount of the credit for that game and that team and that organization does belong to Coach Lombardi. You know, what's fascinating to me, even though I've known you going on 40 years, is that whenever this subject comes up, Jerry, about your best self, and I'm not just talking about you, but all of us, you're, you're, Bob, I know you hear this, right? His voice goes up, he sits up a little straighter, he's back in training camp at 87 years young, and I find it fascinating that this has carried on so long. I've had more people tell me over the years that maybe because you're a guard and, and, and uh, Lombardi was a guard, that that's the connection. He was harder on you than anybody else. But in some way, shape, or form, it almost seems like fate or destiny, Jerry, that you're the guy that's been really carrying the banner for so long and still at it at 87 with this book. You ever think about that? I thought, thought about the relationship, but never in exactly that way, Johnny. He just, uh, I, 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 I'm... I know that anger makes you strong and fear makes you weak. Hmm. And I came up with a substance substitute for real anger. I had mental anger. I imagined that this guy had burned my house, shot my dog, killed my children, on and on and on, right? Mm -hmm. And he was going to pay. And I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to look at anybody. I didn't want to do anything but play and knock that guy right on his keister. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned that in high school. My senior year in high school, I'd shot myself with a 10-gauge double-barrel shotgun in the right arm and the fingers were curled and I couldn't throw the shot put very well. So I'm down at the state tournament in, in Boise and the loudspeaker goes off, I'm now from Sandpoint, Idaho and Jerry Kramer. And I step in the ring and there's six or 7,000 people, which is about three times the size of our city, sitting in the stands and I throw the shot put 30 feet. Now the judges are all out there at about 50 feet and there are four of them. 
and they can't find the indentation I made with the shot put. Hmm. So they're looking for, well, it was way up there. Well, we got to mark it. Well, it was way up there. Well, I didn't see it. it. There were a whole bunch of marks up there, and it was way up there. So it was so short that they couldn't measure it. <laughs> and so after about 15 minutes, uh, the head judge says, well, let's give him another throw. Let's get on with it. So now they get me back in the ring, and I'm angry, and I use that anger, and I use the story I just told you about the, the things that the guys had done to me. Mm-hmm. And I throw 51-10. I go from 30 feet to 51-10 by changing my mind, by using my mind, by using my emotions. And I, it, it stunned me. I, I didn't understand it. I couldn't understand it for years. But when I got to Green Bay and Coach Lombardi got on my tail, I started using it again. And mm. I would prepare every game just that way. How difficult, Bob, was for you as the guy who's put this book together to, to I don't know about putting it in order because it really flows very, very well. Of course, we're talking about the brand new book out called Run to Win. But uh, the one thing I really appreciated in there was the narrative, right? So you guys have this in a way that it's so easily re- readable and you can assimilate everything you're, you're offering to reader. Uh, but you're a- adding elements that I've not seen before in a standalone chapter, like the defensive tackles. You know, I, I, I just want, like, wow. So here, you know, we talk about Packers all the time, but don't always hear about the guys that were going head-to-head with Jerry. Um, when, when it came to getting to that point, we started looking at things that are outside the box, of other editions um, or conversations or um, volumes that have been covered. How did you add that stuff in? Well, first of all, I just want to say one other thing. That 5110 Jerry threw, yeah. that, was a state re- that was a state record. Ah. Well, it wasn't just 5110. It was the state record. So wow. great job, Jerry. Um, but, yeah, when, you know, I had you know, obviously – while Jerry was looking to get into the Hall of Fame, which he should have gotten in, you know, in the 70s and 80s when Bart got in and mm-hmm. Forrest got in and Ray got in and Willie got in and all the other guys, I we we started and his daughter Alicia made, played a major major role in, yeah. in helping getting this done by getting endorsements from Hall of Fame players that Jerry played against and guys like Merlin Olson. Alex Karras, who's now, he got into the Hall of Fame in 2020, thankfully, mm-hmm. and fellows like that. But anyway, I started thinking about that, and after reading Instant Replay, you know that Jerry had Merlin and Alex on his mind quite a bit in that book, obviously. Yeah. And so we start, I, I was thinking to myself, Jerry, who are the best five tackles you ever played against? And he, he gave me the list, and a couple were so, you know, Artie Donovan, I always thought of him as sort of a comedian. Yeah, right. Not so much as a pro football Hall of Famer, but he was very good, obviously. And Jerry explained why he was so good. And then, uh, obviously, uh, uh, Leo and uh, from the 49ers. Nominelli and Charlie uh, Kruger. Yeah, and Charlie didn't make it into the Hall of Fame, but he was very good. Four of the five were Hall of Famers. And another guy that probably would have been on this list if he played against Jerry a little longer and also endorsed Jerry for the Hall of Fame was Alan Page. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah, and Bob Lilly did as well, mm-hmm. and even though he didn't play against Jerry head-to-head, uh, he endorsed him. But anyway, it's just I, I like looking at the opponents, and obviously Jerry uh, has a lot of uh, 
respect uh, about the players we talked about or I wrote about in that piece. It wasn't just teammates, the competitive edge. And one of my favorite stories is the Charlie Kruger story when uh, <clears throat> Jerry can tell it better when you were both at the East-West Shrine game or the college all-star game. Can you tell that story, Jerry? Yeah, it was a Packer game in Green Bay. And I had uh, read, uh, talked about this in, in distant replay. And uh, the San Francisco 49ers come in for a, a ball game. And I'm going through my ritual. I don't look at anybody. I don't look up. I go through the, th the last thing I do is I, before I leave the field, is have Nitschke slap me on the shoulder twice and on the, either side of my head. And so that prepares me. That's a switch. I'm ready to play. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going up the stairs to the locker room, and the 49ers are going up the same stairway, but they have to turn right, and we go straight ahead to our locker room. So I feel this breath on my neck. <laughs> Somebody is right up on my neck, right behind me. And uh, Charlie Kruger and I had played together in a college all-star game in Chicago. And Charlie was about three days late getting to the college all-star game. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Kruger had called about every 15 minutes for three days. And she'd say, <laughs> is Charles Kruger via? <laughs> no, ma'am, Charlie's not here. Okay, is Charles Kruger via? No, ma'am, Charlie's not here. So finally Charlie showed up, and I'm sure he got chewed up and everything, but I'm walking up the stairs for the last seconds in the preparation process before the game starts, and I feel this breath on my neck. And about halfway up the stairs, I turn around, and it's Charlie Kruger. And he says, is Gerald Kramer by you? <laughs> <laughs> so he he just destroyed all my preparation, all my anger, all my get mads, right? He just oh, killed me. That's great. You know, and it's just a fantastic read all the way through. I really enjoyed, again, Bob, what a great job of compiling all this and, and putting it in a succinct order. To, to It just flows like a river, just goes straight through. And eventually, of course, you get to the point where Jerry's going to retire. And one of the things that I remember reading in there, Jerry, was something to do with the way the blocking schemes were being set up after Coach Lombardi just became the general manager. And at one point it had to do, you made the, the example in there, that you had like Jim Grabowski or Donnie Anderson trying to block Dick Butkus. And yeah. that wasn't going to work. And you're trying to explain to the coach why it wasn't going to work, and he just dismissed all that, which was, was part of – uh, you know, part of your decision, things were changing. But I just want to focus for a minute because we just lost Butkus about three weeks ago. And I had a chance over the years to But I got to tell you, you know, we don't have the same uh, connection as I mentioned before to all of our football teams like you guys do. But when Dick Butkus died, we lost it here. Can you talk a little bit about number 51? You know, uh, we started talking about my line coach and I'll uh, – go through the, both of them. I love Dick. Dick was a great competitor and a great football player and had a big heart and just brought it every play. He didn't, he didn't waste any time with you. But I studied my defensive players. I, 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 Leo Namalini, for instance, the San Francisco 49er, who was about 6'6", six, six, 
probably 275, a professional wrestler, a wonderful body, sculpted, uh, just a, a great athlete. But when Leo, he played over me, and so he was either going inside or outside or straight at me. When he was going inside, he would put his right foot back about halfway to, uh, with his left foot, about mid, mid, mid left foot. And when he was going uh, to the left, he would put his feet parallel so that he could step easier with that left foot. And I looked at that in the films and I go, wow, look at here. I, could, I got every play. I can, I can nail him on. I could get in his way. I could get where he wants to go. And he would take an extra two or three seconds or four or five seconds. And I could block him by getting in his way. And so it made a huge difference, uh, you know, when I was blocking him that I knew exactly what he was going to do. And so I, Charlie Kruger, I could pull, pretend like I was going to pull, I would pull my right leg back and my right arm back and Charlie Kruger would be outside the linebacker. He'd take about three steps and he's, out, he's going outside. He's watching me like a hawk. So I could influence the way he moved by just putting an arm like I was going to pull. So I watched my guys awfully close and I watched Dick awfully close because Dick was a, a a great football player and my my guy was a not a real tough guy or a mm -hmm. bad guy it mm -hmm. wasn't Alex or Merlin but mm -hmm. Dick was so we focused more on Dick than we did on the on our guys so I didn't find any particular keys that Dick uh, gave me to let me know where he was going but I just knew he was coming mm -hmm. and he was bringing it he was uh, bringing it with him so He's a wonderful player and a wonderful uh, guy to hang with a little bit. I got to spend some time with him, private time, time or two at a restaurant or two. And a lot of my guys are gone, Johnny. And uh, so many of my Green Bay Packers are gone and they've had wonderful rides. And it's been a wonderful journey for me. And I uh, count myself to, as one of the luckiest human beings in the world to have been selected by Jack Venisi to be a part of that Green Bay team. It's just changed my life so dramatically. And the sawmill guy. And the sawmill guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little bit later uh, in the book, it goes on to talk about, you know, one of the clips I wanted to find, and we've had this conversation before, private and public, was when you were on The Tonight Show and your house burned down, when Dan the man threw some lit matches or something in a can or paint or whatever. Paint. And you're on, yeah, and you're on yeah. The Tonight Show. And I was able to listen to the clip a little bit. I just couldn't find it in its entirety. Um, and, you know, I, I th kept thinking to myself, you know, what are the odds that this guy comes from Parma, Idaho? I, I didn't know about the sawmill guy. And when I look back on The Tonight Show and – the opportunities that have come your way and the people you've met, telling Frank Sinatra how to sing and, you know, all the rest of the stuff that you've gone through. <laughs> I'm thinking that's like a, a one in a billion shot at all of this. I mean, some days you got to sit there and go, this is really unbelievable. You know, I, I've done that a number of times so far. There's one other quick story about Elvis. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. My wife and I were fans of Elvis and fans of Rod McEwen and we had gone to a, a program the night before uh, with Charlie Pride and uh, 
uh, whole thing there, and then we went to see Elvis, and Elvis, the Mater D put us right down on the stage. I could put my drink on the stage; it was almost even with me, and so we're sitting right at the very next to the stage. And Elvis is dressed in his white outfit and white jacket and a white scarf around his neck. And my wife is a beautiful lady, of course, and a lovely lady. And mm -hmm. Elvis uh, comes over and sings a little bit to her. And then he uh, takes his scarf off <laughs> and wraps it around her neck. And he's pulling it back and forth. And I pull my fist back. <laughs> And I'm going to dope pop him. I'm going to bust him right in the face. He's messing with my lady, right? And, and, and nobody messes with my lady like that. So I draw back on him, and I catch myself just at full draw. And maybe Elvis sees something too. But I didn't dope pop him. But I came as close as I'll ever come and not go through with it. But uh, Wow. It was, it, again, it was just a... A moment, you know, mm -hmm. and if it wasn't me, it was her, and so sure, sure, it was it was wonderful. The whole journey. I, I'm with Charlie Pride at the Lombardi Golf Tournament, and George C. Scott is at the table I'm sitting at, and Charlie comes over and wants to sing a song for Wink, mm -hmm. and and George C. doesn't know Charlie, and he's not a fan of Charlie's, and he looks at me and he goes, Jerry. Who the hell is that? Oh, no. Said, that's, Char that's Charlie Pride. You would tell him to get the hell out of here, will you? Tell him to go oh. somewhere else. <laughs> uh, 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 George, uh, uh, he's kind of a friend of mine, and uh, uh, my wife likes him, and uh, if you could hold on a little bit, he'll, he'll be gone before too long. And <laughs> George quieted down. Right. And... Uh, and sat back, and we ended up, Charlie did leave without, and he was working the room a bit, but uh, George and I went up to his room, and we talked about a Lombardi movie. And yes. I can see George waving one hand over his head. Damn it, you can write. I can't write. You can write. You got to write a script. You got to And so we were well into the bourbon by the time I decided to lay down on his couch. And I laid down on his couch and fell asleep. And uh, I woke up about 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, his wife was over by the window. And uh, she said, good morning, Jerry. I go, get back to my room. And I'm standing up and starting to move out of the room. And she says, are you going to say goodbye to George? And I go, where's George? And she points to a bedroom I'm about to walk by. So as I walk by the bedroom, George pulls the covers back with one hand to where his face and the other arm are sticking out. And he waves at me with his fingers. And then he pulls the cover back over his head. But... I did have a, a great time with him. He he was uh, he was a fan, and uh, I later went to his house for dinner out in L.A. And he, I'm worried about dress. You know, I gotta yeah, get yeah. dressed up. I gotta. There's gonna be Hollywood folks there, and all this. And there were 20 people there, or 30, whatever. 
and George comes out with a sweatshirt and jeans. <laughs> and he made everybody comfortable. There you go. He made everybody feel go. good. Yeah. yeah. So he was he was fun. Bob? Yeah. I, I just wanted to bring up one other story that's never been written about until this book, speaking of celebrity status. You know, Jerry, everybody, 1973, uh, you know, Dick Sanic and David Brown produced two movies, one called The Sting and the other one called Jaws. So they were pretty hot in 1973. Mm -hmm. They had had another movie they were producing called Walking Tall. And Dick Zanuck and David Brown, the first person they wanted to take that lead role or was offered that lead role was none other than Jerry Kramer. That would change things. <laughs> let, let me add Let me add to that a little bit. I was in Acapulco with a couple of apartment building giants, and uh, Claude Crabb was with me and Henry Kyle, and I had a friend there that ran into us in the bar who had a 55-foot Chris Craft down in Acapulco, a guy from California. And uh, we're having a few drinks, and Dick Zanuck comes over and taps me on the shoulder and said, Jerry, uh, my name is Dick Zanuck. Uh, I'm uh, having a party at my father's house tonight, and we'd like you to join with us. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, hell, I'd love to. Dar- with Daryl F. Zanuck? Right. He's produced 150 films or so, cowboy movies every week. So we go up to Daryl F. Zanuck's home, and we have New Year's Eve, and we drink some wine and have a, just a wonderful time. And uh, long about four in the morning, we decided it's time to break up, but that the guy with the Chris says, well, let's go sailing at Acapulco Bay. It's a beautiful night, it's mm-hmm. a monster moon, it's a soft, gentle breeze. It'll be perfect. We'll go about seven o'clock. So Claude Crabb and I, and Henry and all of my friends, and uh, Daryl, or Dick, and uh, uh, Helen Gurley Brown's husband, D- David Brown, went down the boat, and we sailed on Acapulco Bay and drank hooch. And, Not a uh, bad deal. Pretend, pretend like we were somebody, yeah, you know, for yeah. <laughs> three or four hours, and it just was an unbelievable evening. So we get back to the base, the shore, and Dick says, Jerry, I got to get back to LA. I've got a ton of work to do and I've got a home rented over here. It's a pretty nice place and you guys can have it for the next couple weeks if you want. <laughs> and I said, well, Dickie, we'll, we'll look at it. Let's go by and look at it. I'm not sure it's going to be good enough for us. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I right, did tell right. him we'd come by and look at it. Yeah. And we went by and looked at it and it had five servants. And it had a big pool, and it had a little cable car running down to the ocean, and uh, I pronounced it bully, and said, "Yeah, we, yeah, we can handle yeah. this." So we moved in, and we had a New Year's Eve party for about thirty-five guys. There were a lot of bears down there uh, that came to our party, and a lot of other ball players that we ran into from New Year's Eve, and just had a wonderful time. So. When I leave uh, Acapulco, I go to L.A., and I call Dick, and I said, Dickie, I need to take you to dinner. 
you, you, I enjoyed your home so much, and I appreciate it so much that I got to pay you back for some of it. Just if you could want to go to dinner with your wife and David and Helen, I'd I'd love to sponsor you. Jerry, I'm really up to up to up against it. He said, "Why don't you come out to commissary? We'll have lunch at the studio." Said, okay, so we go out to the studio, and David Brown takes me aside, and he says, "Jerry, we're working on a film about a sheriff down in Tennessee, and he kind of cleans up the city with a baseball bat, <laughs> and it's called Walking Tall." He said, "We think you might be a fit for the." for the main shot, the main piece. Would you be interested? And I froze, Johnny. I chickened out. I, mm. I ducked. I, I oh, I, 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 I've got, got autograph sessions tomorrow, and then I've got uh, the next day, and I, uh, 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 and I chickened out, just flat chickened out. Yeah. And so I, I that's the one time and the one thing that I regret not doing. As I, I've always dreamed about things like that, but that was too real. And, 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 and with the people I was talking to, I knew that they were real. Hmm. And I wasn't sure that I was real. Right, right. <laughs> so, wow. so I didn't go. So, But what was it like for you when you watched Merlin Olson on Little House on the Prairie and Alex Karras doing his TV? And even Butkus was in at least 40, if not 50, shows and TV shows and movies. What was it like for you to watch these guys you did battle with on television? Well, I had ended up being friends with all of them, really. And uh, Alex uh, uh, and I had a pretty difficult uh, period in our careers where we were playing against each other and having a hell of a difficult time. And I'm trying to field goal from 49 yards and Alex comes through late, hits me in the face with a forearm and said, stick that in your book, you blankety blank, blank, blank. (laughs) (laughs) And so after football, I signed to do Canadian football broadcast Mm -hmm. and Alex signed to do Canadian football Ah. a week after I did, right? (laughs) And we, we still had real harsh feelings for one another. And so I'm up there the first game and Alex shows up and he says something and I correct him and I disagree with him and I'm a real ass. And uh, I'm just uh, cutting him up every way I can. So the next week, I'm up there a day early and Alex comes up. We're out at the stadium with four or five of the guys there that are with us. And Alex comes over to our little group. We're sitting mm-hmm. laying on the lawn. And he says, hey, Jerry, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing all right. He says, we used to have some great ball games against one another, didn't we? And I said, yeah, we did, Alex. We did. And I remember one game in Green Bay. When I was trying a 49-yard field goal, you came through late, hit me in the mouth with your forearm, and said, stick that in your book, you blank, 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 blank. And he just turned like a stoplight. He just turned right red. Oh. And he put his head down and, oh, shucks, and, oh, yeah, and g- giggled a little bit. And I giggled a little bit. And then we started laughing our ass off. 
and mm. it just got to be a lot of fun. So I ended up going home with Alex to Detroit and doing his late night Detroit show on television. And we became pretty good pals. Mm. And so when he did Blazing Saddles, oh, I man. thought he was stupendous yeah. in that particular show. He was just perfect for it. And I gave him a glowing review. And somebody showed it to Alex, and he called me, uh, just giggling and laughing and happy and <laughs> chair. It was beautiful. That was so nice of you, so wonderful. So we we patched all of our battles up and uh, became pretty good pals. Yeah, you know, Bob, we were uh, both. I don't know. I'm sure we were both there together in Canton when Jerry was inducted. But I want to go back to the whole process that you captured in the book about how that took place after being overlooked so many times, it really came down to Alicia Kramer uh, run interference for her dad, didn't it? Oh, without question. She started a letter writing drive for Packer fans to send letters. Plus uh, she and a fellow by the name of Randy Simon, who used to work for the governor of Idaho and, now is in a different business, but he put together a flip snack book, which had, I think, 33 or 34 endorsements of Jerry by players that were in already in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I mentioned some of them earlier, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> that really helped out as well. So Alicia was fighting one battle, and then, you know, I was involved with her, obviously, uh, writing my things, etc. But then... <clears throat> thinking to myself, we got to get inside the onion here. We got to peel back the onion, find out what's going on. And thankfully, that's when I got to know Rick Goslin, who, by the way, wrote the introduction in our book. And he gave me the process, basically, of what needs to happen for Jerry to get in. And he was a big supporter of Jerry. And uh, he's also a big supporter of Ron Kramer, by the way, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Boy, Boy Dowler and Gail Gillingham, three guys that should be in Canton as well. But anyway, so once I got inside the process as to what needed to happen, that helped me. And along with Alicia's efforts, it finally happened in two, the summer of 2017 when Jerry finally was nominated. Mm-hmm. And uh, even then, though, in, in talking to Jerry, and he'll let you know, he had been nominated before in 97 as a senior right. and it didn't happen then. So until it actually happened in February of 2018, when he got a knock on the door by the most beautiful man in the world that goes about <laughs> 400 pounds, yeah. six, nine, 400, David Baker until then he didn't know for sure. Yeah. You know, one thing, Jerry, I don't know if I ever told you this. So I know one of the other things that Alicia had done was a, and Bob, you know, this because you're part of it was a letter writing campaign to the Hall of Fame from the fans. And they, I started to watch this take place, and there were these little updates about, you know, all this mail comes in, and 99% of it is about getting Kramer in the Hall of Fame. And these are all football fans, not just Packer fans, across the board. So about eight months before all that took place with the nomination and stuff, I did an overnight national shift out of Chicago for about two months. I sat in for a guy, and I had, you know how long it took? 11 at night till four in the morning is, I'll tell you, it's a lot, but you got a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of air to fill. And I reached out to Alicia and I asked her if she wanted to come on the show and talk to the country, even though it was, I probably did it at midnight, which would have been like a 10, a, 10 PM your time, Jer. 
And yep. Alicia came on and talked for an hour about you and about the importance of this. The effing phone lines lit up like a Christmas tree. And the calls we took were from St. Louis and New York and Cincinnati and Cleveland and all across the board. Every franchise was represented basically. And most of these people, they were, they never saw you play. You know, these were people who had studied the game and they thought it was an injustice. And they were literally physically writing emails and regular snail mail to the, to the Hall of Fame. And part of me thinks that Alicia just put a headlock on him and said, listen, this is how it's going to go, whether you like it or not. And eventually she prevailed. So she, I was there in the crowd. Bob, you were there at, uh, at Canton when Alicia you know, introduced you that night. And Jerry, what was that like for you to have your daughter up there on stage? Perfect. Just perfect. I had, there were a lot of guys that I loved and I spent time with and and whatnot. And but she did such a, a wonderful job, and she got the governor's aide to work with her, Randy, as Bob mentioned. And uh, she just uh, was a whirlwind, you know. She just uh, took the, took it on her shoulders and said, "It's time." And uh, so I. I I'm, she's not only a beautiful girl and my daughter, but she's very bright too. Hmm. It, when you sum all this up, you know the documentary is a part of this too. We can we should touch on that because, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I wanted to make sure that uh, part of the this great battle between the Bears and the Packers was represented, not just passed over. And Brian McCaskey and his staff were so generous to spend time to do that and their resources to do it. And I don't know if I ever told you this part. I said, here's what I need. I need this certain game, and it's the first half, and it's the Bears and Packers, and I believe it was in Milwaukee. Well, they sent me all of the defense for the Packers. That was not going to help me. So I had to sit through that and go, wait a minute, this is the wrong film. And then eventually sent me the right stuff, and it got put in. But when I went out to McCaskey's house to be with the film crew to have that included in there, the one thing he asked me when we were done, when it was all said and done, he says, uh, don't tell anybody this, but I read Instant Replay. My grandfather would kill me. <laughs> <laughs> so we sent him We sent him an autographed uh, helmet, as I recall, Jerry, and it's sitting next to a big bottle of bourbon, so it's, it's, it's well covered. <laughs> but, but the last two questions I have for you guys is this. You know, Jerry, well, let me go to Bob first. Bob, this process, you know, you're a writer, so you get it. You know, you're used to digging this stuff up and regurgitating it, putting it in, you know, in a form that people can – can assimilate and make part of their lives and their experience. But this is a little different. This is a major undertaking to do this book with this guy at this time. Did this change you at all during the process of writing this book? Did, were there things about yourself or maybe your relationship to the Packers and, and, and you know, more as a fan, not just a, a journalist? Did that change at all? Well, it was sort of like the Lombardi principles that Jerry has told me about. And it's like even right now as we're trying to promote the book, but even doing the book, it was like, you know, one of the Jerry and I were just talking about it earlier before the show, you know, when we're talking about things we're going to do to get this book promoted, et cetera. It's the big push. Uh And every time I had a uh, maybe a down period or whatever, what what are we going to do now? Next, what are we going to how are we going to format it? How are we going to sum this up? Are we going to add it here? Whatever. Uh, It was always just stay with it. You know, you have to get on the blocking sled and let her rip. And that's basically what, how I felt doing the, you know, writing the book. Mm-hmm. But I do want, I do want to mention one thing just before I sign off, you talked about the bears Packers mm-hmm. and 
obviously George Hallis was a uh, he endorsed Vince Lombardi to get the coaching job in Green Bay. Right. He also promoted the new city stadium, which is now Lambeau Field. So George Hallis played a big role in helping the Packers become what they became in the '60s. One one quick story, Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John, I went to we played in the second place bowl in Miami. Uh, in about 66 or 67, 68, six, somewhere in there. And we flew all night to get to L.A. to play in the Pro Bowl. Yeah. And but we go by the hotel and throw our <laughs> luggage at the Bellman, and Coach Hallis is the head coach at the Pro Bowl. Yeah. And Coach Hallis gets on, and he sits behind the driver on the first seat on the aisle. And I get on, and I go back about three or four seats on the right side of the bus, and I sat on the aisle. And as I go by Coach Hallis, he says, Jerry, uh, we didn't want you Green Bay boys to get behind, and uh, I've got a playbook here for you. So I got the playbook, and I went back and sat down in my chair, and I opened the playbook, and the first play was Red Right 49, which was our sweep, Mm -hmm. our color code, our numbering, our blocking, our play, identical. Red left, 48, 46, 47, 43, 42, 41, 40. I look up at George with my mouth open because I've just looked at my playbook from Green Bay and I, 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 I didn't know what to say and George was turned around watching me. And he said, Jerry, we didn't want you Green Bay boys to get behind, so we just put in your <laughs> offense. <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. That's perfect. That's perfect. That, that's 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 classic, George. Yeah, it? vintage Hallis. So, Jerry, you're one of the last guys standing. I can't. You know, it's you and Robbie. A um, Boyle Dollar still around, right? Yes, he is. Yeah. 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 We just yeah. talked to George Boyd a couple weeks ago. Right, and you know, it, I keep every time we have conversations, and and this has been fantastic as I've learned so much and reading the book as much as I know you. And know the stories and heard these things. I was pulling pieces out of. I never heard this before. So Bob, congratulations for squeezing that stuff out and putting it in print because it made the read just that much more enhanced. It was just like I couldn't stop reading this, and I couldn't wait to do this show because I just it's just a great piece of work. And I was wondering. I'm thinking to myself, how are they going to top? How do you top instant replay and distant replay and farewell to football and all that stuff? I, I'm not saying you're going to top it, but it sure stands in line with all of them. There is no slack cut here. But, Jer, you're like one of the last guys left. Do you ever feel that you're speaking for the guys that aren't here, all this stuff? I mean, I mean, you really got to pull the, the lens back at some point and go, you know, there's only three or four or five of us left, and, and I get to do this and tell these stories and continue to wave this banner because part of me thinks – that the what you both you guys are trying to do with this book underneath the stories, which are great, is still get a message across about discipline, determination, work ethic, all the things that made those the teams so incredible, are just as much needed today as they were then. Underneath all of it, but do you feel like you're the messenger for all that? To a certain extent, John Coach Lombardi had an impact on everyone that ever met him not just the guys that played for him and played for him for years, but just meeting him made an impact on him. And I get mail from people who have had experiences like that. So I, uh, I didn't change my philosophy a lot when I quit playing football. I still believed in commitment and 
consistency and all all of the Lombardi principles. You know, do it right. Do it the right way, the right time, the first time. You don't do things right once in a while. You do them right all the time. And so his messages fit with life. And you can, if you will, is a... A, a invitation to join that group of people who believed the way he believed and the way he thought. And it, it, it's a success in life is yours if you're willing to pay the price, if you're willing to do things right, not just once in a while, every time, everywhere you go, everything you do, you do it right and you'll be fine. You'll do well. So his, his, teachings, his messages are valid today, Johnny. They're just as valid, and they will be as long as there's a human being on this earth. They'll be valid for the rest of the time. And so it's, it's, it's just something that uh, has had a dramatic impact on my life, and I obviously feel very strongly about and I think I'm right. I got to close it with this because uh, if this doesn't sum it up, I don't know what is. The great writer Dave Moranis uh, who wrote a fantastic book called When Pride Still Mattered, uh, A Life of Vince Lombardi, said, Jerry Kramer is the renaissance man of the glory years Green Bay teams. Not just one of the greatest pulling guards in NFL history, but also well-read, a perceptive writer, great talker, and all-around good guy. I consider him the embodiment of the Lombardi-era Packers. So with that being said, the book is called Run to Win. It is available, gentlemen, I'm sure, everywhere, Amazon.com and all the rest of the dot-coms in the world and at Triumph Books. Triumph Books, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, Books a Million, pretty much everywhere. Listen, it's been an honor speaking with you guys. Bob, I know our paths have crossed a couple times at the event in Milwaukee. It's great to talk to you again. And Jerry, old buddy, always good to spend time with you, pal. Johnny, my pleasure. Thanks for having us on. You're you're super at what you do. You do a great job. It's been a pleasure being with you. So this is one of those full disclosure moments. It is uh, the day after the interview. It's uh, literally 5 o'clock in the morning here in Chicago. And I've just finished the editing process. And it pops in my mind about forgetting to ask Jerry to do the Invictus poem. Now, the Invictus poem was written by uh, a gentleman named William Ernst Henley, very, very long time ago, and it really speaks to the human soul and the human spirit and uh, overcoming things in life. And if there's anybody that's overcome things in life, it's Jerry Kramer. We didn't even get into his medical history, which would take a whole other show. But I was recalling a moment this morning early when he and I did an event called Lessons from Lombardi in Upper Michigan, where I lived at the time. And to, to see this guy on stage, and let, let me just set this up for you real quick, because I know it's a long podcast, but bear with me. It's worth all this effort into listening to it. Um, to see this guy on stage who had not played football for decades and to see a packed house, 500, 600 people sitting there hanging on every, every word of his was just fascinating to me. I was off to the side as the, uh, the uh, MC, the moderator, and I was basically throwing softballs, actually footballs, I should say, to Kramer so he could tell his stories and, and really make his point. And it was a fantastic evening. And right towards the end, we had already set it up that he was going to recite the Invictus poem. And as we're getting closer and closer to that point, uh, I started to see something remarkable happen. The people in the audience had been sitting there enjoying themselves and laughing and a few tears as well. 
uh, because they're spending time with this guy that they you know remember from the ice bowl and all the rest that goes along with the the Kramer lore. But as he got more and more intense in his conversation with them, they started to lean in towards him. I was off to the side watching this lean-in process. Fascinating energy exchange. So as I'm sitting here t- this morning drinking coffee and you know editing the show down, I thought I got to find a way to put that in. And I went back and through the archives, which I got a thousand audio clips, everything you can imagine, uh, I was able to find a short clip of Jerry from a few years ago uh, reciting the Invictus poem. Now, it's not the exact same audio quality as we had in the show, so bear with me, but I thought there has to be a way to finish the show differently than, than just signing off, and I would be remiss if I did not include it in this, uh, this episode. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. Out of the night that covers me, dark as a pit from pole to pole, I thank the Lord above for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. And under the bludgeonings of fate, my head is bloody but unbowed. In this pale of gloom and tears looms but the shadow of the glade. And yet the passing of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul.